John 13, 1 through 17, I've entitled this message an example of love, and obviously we're dealing with the text where Jesus washes his disciples' feet and ties in some, some good, strong teaching. Just uh, by way of reflection, in chapters 1 through 12 of the Gospel of John, uh, the author John focuses primarily on Jesus' public ministry as well as Israel's, you know, consistent unbelief and final rejection of Jesus as Messiah. So in a nutshell, that's chapters 1 through 12. The emphasis and focus, as far as John is concerned, is on the ministry of Jesus and on the call to believe and on evangelism and yet also Israel's rejection of their Messiah. In chapters 13 through 17, John steers the focus in a different direction. He, he focuses not on Jesus' public ministry, per se. That is complete. He focuses on Jesus' private ministry, where the Lord spent his final hours loving and teaching his own disciples. And theologians refer to this, this five, there's actually five full chapters represented here, but they they refer to this five-chapter section as the farewell discourse, like Jesus is telling his disciples, farewell, I'm about to leave you. And, you know, if you fast forward to chapter 18, you see him get arrested and all that. So that's really the end of it. I like what uh, Alexander McLaren said about the farewell discourse. This is really interesting. He said, nowhere else do the blended lights of our Lord's superhuman dignity and human tenderness shine with such lambent brightness. Nowhere else is his speech at once so simple and so deep. Nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. On no other page, even in the Bible, have so many eyes glistening with tears looked and had tears dried. And he says, the immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber. He's referring again to, to this whole section here. He says, the immortal words which Christ spoke in that upper chamber and nowhere else are his highest self-revelation and speech. Well, that's a pretty outstanding definition to the farewell discourse. In other words, Jesus said a lot of things and did a lot of things, but this is the, this is the cream of the crop. This is his highest revelation, what we see in this personal ministry to his disciples. And if any of you have ever read the High Priestly Prayer in a couple of chapters or any of that, you'll, you know exactly what McLaren is, is referencing here. You, you know that he's accurate in his statement. This, the farewell discourse is a theological tour de force. But not only that, it, it opens up to us the tenderness of Christ in a way that other texts don't. And so we are going to spend many, many weeks studying the farewell discourse, but we have a section that we have to deal with today. Now, the farewell discourse, it really has two parts because it was given at two different locations. Some theologians, and I think McLaren might be one of them and, and uh, a few others that I was reading, think that it all transpired in the upper room, you know, on that last night of, of, uh, before Jesus was arrested. Uh, and I, I don't think that's true, because if you look at the end of chapter 14, it says they got up and left the upper room. So, so what you actually have playing out in the chronology or in the narrative is, is part of it's given in the upper room during the Last Supper and all those things, and then the rest of it is given as they're transitioning from the upper room to Gethsemane, where Jesus is arrested, betrayed and arrested and all of that. So it, it has really two parts, and it transpired or was given by Jesus to his disciples um, in, in, at two different times and in two different places. The first part, again, we see in 13.1 through 14.31. And the second part we see in 15.1 through 17.26. Now, now, we don't know if Jesus was just, if he just kept talking as they were walking. They had to cross the Kidron Valley and go quite a distance to get to Gethsemane. So we don't know if he, if he stopped off and sat, you know, under the starlight with his disciples because this transpired at night. And that's when he taught them the rest of the discourse. We don't know if he was just speaking as they were walking along. I think it's a combination of both things. I think he was talking as they were walking. And then once in a while they would stop off on their way and he would unpack more truth. And the discourse, very interestingly, begins with Jesus setting an example of love for his disciples. 
you know, he's been talking to them about love and the love of God in these things. He's been proclaiming the gospel to them, and he's been modeling the love of God in many ways. But on this particular evening, at this particular time, he sets an example. He does something, and therefore setting an example of love for them to follow. Or if you don't want to call it an example, you can call it a pattern. It is a pattern of a true disciple. It is a pattern of love that they and every disciple since them is to follow. He basically teaches them through his own example how to love others. Because it's one thing to talk about love. It's quite another, to, right? It's, it's one thing to teach people about the love of God, but it's quite another to show them the love of God through your actions. And that is essentially what Jesus does. The, the discourse is chock full of teachings about his love for his disciples, but it's got some examples too, some physical examples that he played out in front of them so that they could see it and it was tangible. He basically teaches them how to love others, especially disciples, other disciples, especially the brethren. And, and you may not be aware of this because we're always looking at God's love and we're always talking about how we should love others. But did you know that there's a higher emphasis placed on loving other believers over unbelievers? The scripture actually talks about this. And you would think, well, that's terrible. Why would that be? No, no, God wants us firstly to love other believers and to love them well. And from that point out, we go out into a lost world and love them with the gospel. And we share the gospel with them and we serve people in various ways. But this whole discourse is about Jesus loving the disciples and really teaching them how to love each other. Has he not spent three years showing them how to preach the gospel and care for outsiders? Absolutely. Now he's showing them, this is how I want you guys to love each other. I'm going to be gone soon. And this is how you're to love each other. This is how you're to love the church. So that's what this section of the discourse is about. And we can pick it up at verse 1. John begins this new section. This is a total new direction for his gospel. He begins it with this introductory kind of set of sentences here. He says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a fascinating statement. What a, what a brilliant statement. And really what John's doing here is he gives us the setting and the context for the farewell discourse. First thing he does in the first verse is he establishes the context for everything that's about to be said and done, as well as the setting for where most of this stuff or some of this stuff is going to transpire. The setting was before the feast of the Passover, which which would have been Passover Eve or the night before this week-long Passover celebration began. And he tells us here, look, this is when Jesus washed our feet and laid this example before us. It happened before the feast of the Passover actually began. John tells us that Jesus knew that his hour had come, and when we see that phrase. It is a reference to his death. It is a reference to his departure. It is a reference to his suffering. It is a reference to the atonement he's going to make. And so John tells us, he alerts us that Jesus, you know, on this particular evening, as this thing was about to unfold, fully aware that he's about to be betrayed, arrested, pulverized, nailed to a cross. He totally knows that these things are about to happen. He knows that he is about to depart from this world, meaning go into paradise in the presence of the Father when he breathes his last breath. And he also describes the context for the entire farewell discourse there. And it, you can summarize the context in the phrase, loved his own who were in the world. You know, that, 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 that kind of summarizes it. He, he, he loved those whom he did ministry with, whom he chose for ministry. He loved his disciples. They were in the world, right? They lived in the world. In fact, they were worldly till they met Jesus. They might have been religious, but they were worldly. But that's really it. He loved his own who were in the world. That's the context for the whole discourse. We draw our meaning from that little simple statement, which means it's going to be entirely about loving the disciples, showing them how he loved them in his final moments. He loved them till the end. This is the end, and now he's really going to show them how he loves them. In fact, on the next day, he really shows them how he loves them, doesn't he, when he gets nailed to a cross. But before he gets nailed to a cross and gives them the ultimate example, he gives them this foot-washing example. So the context is about loving his disciples all the way to the end. 
And these disciples were, they were in the world, right? Which means at one point they were of the world, they were lost in darkness, but Jesus effectually called 11 of them out of the world into his marvelous light, and now they were his disciples living in the world. You see, before you're a Christian, you're of the world. You are the world. But when you become a Christian through God's grace, through his sovereign grace, you are no longer of the world. You are merely existing in it. You are actually of his kingdom. You're transferred from the world, which is darkness, into the kingdom, which is light. And so his disciples were in the world, not of it. And when you meet people who profess to be Christians and they are very, very worldly, it's obvious that they haven't been converted yet and they are still of the world, not Christians living in it. I love this statement. It says, love them to the end. I just want to flesh that out a little bit more. It literally means, according to the Greek, it means that Jesus... It's not the idea that he just loved them from front to back because that's how we see it. Like he loved them the entire time he was with them. That's great. But, you know, if you know the love of God, he loved them way before then in eternity past. It has to do with loving them perfectly, uninterruptedly. And if you think of Peter and what a buffoon he was and get behind me, Satan, and all those weird interactions, yeah, he loved them. He loved Peter perfectly in the midst of all of that. And Peter's about to drop his biggest snafu of all here when he vows to, you know, die with Jesus and then betrays him later that evening, early in the morning. But he loved them perfectly all the way through it, through all their misgivings, through all their arguments with one another over who's the greatest. We're going to see that again in the text. Through all of this, he loves them perfectly. And this is the love that he has for us. He loved them perfectly. MacArthur says to to the end, we see it in the text, to the end represents the unique special love Jesus has for his chosen people. Yes, God loves the world, John 3.16. God loves sinners, Matthew 5.44, Titus 3.4, with compassion and common grace, no doubt. But God loves his own with perfect, saving, eternal love. That is what is represented here in loving them to the end, with perfection, undisturbed, immutable, unchanging love, eternal love, love, the love of salvation, which is clearly not something that God bestows to every living person. The context is Jesus' hour has come, the hour of his death and departure, and he loves his disciples perfectly. There's your broader context. He loves them perfectly. And Jesus literally uses these final hours to display his love for them and and to teach his love to them and to model his love to them through several examples that the disciples must follow themselves when they are going to go out as his messengers or as his disciples or apostles and love others and preach the gospel. So the farewell discourse is all about Jesus' love for his disciples. If you were going to boil down the next five full chapters, that's it. It is God's love for his people. That's it. That's what makes this section so extraordinary. If you've ever doubted or wondered if God loves you, if you've ever had issues with that or issues with with abiding in his love and receiving his love or walking in his love, you go to 13 through 17 of John and you read this section. And if it doesn't convince you, nothing will. Nothing will. This section is entirely, this whole discourse is entirely about Jesus' love for his disciples. And guess what? Past, present, and future disciples. And that means us, if you're in Christ. Okay? Now we look at 2 through 5. And John is building a little more a little more background here with the opening line, you know, during supper. So now we know that there's a supper playing out here. He says, during supper, and then he says this really kind of shocking statement. When the devil, it's like, oh, you're bringing him into this? Yeah, well, you know, yeah. When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, he's one of the disciples, right? Simon's son to betray him. Here's what Jesus does. Knowing this about Judas who's there, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. That's verse 4. 
four and a half here or four B, he laid aside, this is interesting, Jesus lays aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Five, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So here's the next set of verses, here's the next thing that transpires on this evening. John tells us obviously that it happened during supper. Well, this is no ordinary supper. This is the Last Supper. How many of you have seen the Da Vinci painting or whatever, right? You know, with the floating hand and all that? I don't know if there was a floating hand. I don't know. But anyways, this is that Last Supper where you have Jesus and all of his disciples around this table, and they're all reclining and having this meal together, right? It's a very famous biblical scene. We've seen the imagery, all the paintings. And by the way, all the characters in there are totally white and Scandinavian. It never made any sense to me. They were Jewish. Hello. They were like tan. Um, they, weren't, they didn't look like me. You know, They had beards, though. I don't know if their beards were as nice as mine, but they had beards. But you know, this is that scene. Imagine. just We're there right now. Imagine you're in the back as a witness, just chilling in the corner, watching this supper play out. This is when it's happening. This is the Last Supper. This is where, as I already said, Jesus established the New Covenant. This is where he established communion, right? And, and so this is the event. But as I said earlier, John doesn't emphasize any of that. The synoptic writers do. John's focusing on something else here. And this occurred at sunset. This is when they ate dinner at sunset. The sun's going down. It occurred on sunset, and it was before the crucifixion. The crucifixion will transpire in about 18 hours, so this is like Jesus' last 18 hours before he's nailed to a cross. He doesn't have a whole lot of time left with his disciples. In fact, some of that time's going to get chewed up, sitting in a jail cell and getting beaten out in the square and being tried and all that. In approximately 18 hours, Jesus will utter the words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and he will breathe his last breath, and he will die on that old rugged cross. And during this supper... Judas Iscariot was there. He's one of the disciples. But he had satanic, he had demonic intentions. He wasn't there to celebrate like the other guys or there to worship Jesus or, or to participate in the same way with the same disposition, attitude, and heart as the others. He was there, and it was like he was a mole for the Sanhedrin. He was there, and he was there to perform a particular task, to gain intel, information on where Jesus would be in the following hours. He was there for 30 pieces of silver. He basically agreed to lead the religious leaders to Jesus, identify him with a kiss on the cheek. That's why Judas was there. John's already telling him what the devil had already put into Judas's heart. He was there. He had malicious intent. He was a son of perdition from the beginning. He was not a believer who fell from grace. He was never a believer, always selfish, always satanic. And he is there in the room playing the religious game with the other 11, going along with it. And the other 11 have no clue that he's up to no good. They, he had them so... This guy, was a, this guy would have won an Academy Award. He was there with satanic intentions, murderous intentions. And we know that the devil is a murderer. John 8, 44, Jesus said it. And those who seek to take a person's life, right, in an unlawful way, we're not talking about self-defense, even though that's a worst-case scenario. Those who seek to take a person's life, those who follow through and commit the act of murder, right, they are in accord with the devil. They are carrying out the devil's will. I love what uh, Adolf Schlatter said. He said, the heart that is inspired by the devil wills what the devil wills. And that is the meaning here through John's statement that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray. He is there to do his father, the devil's will. That's why Judas is there. John tells us that Judas was not only inspired by the devil in his heart, but that he actually becomes possessed by the devil down in verse 27. 
So this isn't just having demonic intention or doing the devil's will. To pull off this task, the devil, Satan, literally himself, and I've never ever heard of another instance of this. I've heard of possession, demonic possession and these things, but I have never heard of Satan actually entering somebody. It's always a demon, something like that. In this instance, Satan himself takes up residency in Judas to ensure that Judas will follow through with the intentions of his heart and the devil's will. This is a terrifying moment here in John 13. It's a beautiful moment of love and the example in these things, but it's also terrifying. In fact, the whole next section next week, we're going to focus on Jesus identifying the betrayer. We're going to look at that terrifying aspect of it. But this guy was not just doing the will of the devil. He was possessed by the devil as if the devil was working through him. And we don't want to remove Judas's culpability and say, well, he was just controlled by the devil as a kind of robot doing what he did not want to do. No, no. He wanted to do this dreadful work. He sold Jesus out. And to me, that just opened up a doorway for Satan to enter him fully and to lead him through this entire process. So he was fully responsible for what he did here. And every sinner is fully responsible for their sin. No matter how God sovereign God is or election or anything else, you must understand we are culpable. We must submit and surrender to Jesus to be forgiven or else we're going to pay for our sin. So he is possessed by the devil. He's doing the devil's work here in this supper time thing that's playing out. And Jesus totally knew about it. Look at verse 18 and 21 down a little bit further. He identifies him as the betrayer. He knows what Judas is up to. And he still follows through with all these actions and does all of this stuff. And he even washes the dude's feet to give him an example of love in a heart that is sealed in hatred and murder. It's incredible what Jesus does. Jesus knew who his betrayer was. Um, he knew this about Judas, verse 18, 21. He even identified him, verse 26, 27. But Jesus also knew all about himself. He knew who he was, the Son of God. He knew where he had come from, right, from God, and he knew where he was going to, back to God in a few hours. All that's listed in the text if you look at it closely. The statement, the Father had given all things into his hands, into Jesus' hands, is a testimonial expression for Jesus acting as the agent for God or for the Father. A similar statement appears back in John 3.35 where it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. John has already listed some of the ways in which Jesus exercises his divinely appointed agency, right? Because right? the Father's literally turned all things over to Jesus. What does that look like? John has described what that looks like in several places, right? Um, uh, as the agent for God, creation comes through his agency. Jesus creates all things, right? John 1, 3, all things were made through him. Who? Jesus. And without him, who? Jesus. Was not anything made that was made. That's an expression of Jesus' sovereign lordship and his agency as the Father's agent. Creation comes through the agent who is Jesus. Salvation we see in John 1, 4. In him, speaking of Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. There's two examples in the Gospel of John of Jesus' agency. He is the creator he is the one who brings salvation, and he is the judge, John 5, 22. For the Father, Jesus said, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Okay, three expressions in John about the agency of Jesus Christ. John tells us that Jesus knew or was fully aware of his divinely appointed position as well as where he had come from, from God, and where he was going back to God. But, and here's what's so phenomenal about this text, but instead of basking in the glow of his power and authority, John sets the stage for what's about to happen, and he basically says Jesus is the baddest of them all. That's what he says here. 
He is the highest. He is the agent. All these things have come through him. He is top. There's no one above him, right? He is co-equal to the Father and the Spirit. He says this, but instead of Jesus basking in the glow of his prestige, his position, his power, his authority, what does he do? He humbles himself and takes on the form of a lowly servant by removing his outer garment, by wrapping a towel around his waist, by filling a basin with water, and by stooping to his needs, knees. This is the Lord of the universe, people, and this Lord of the universe does these things and stoops to his knees to wash these sinners' feet. Whoa. Are you kidding me? No, that's exactly what he that's exactly who he is, and that's exactly what he's doing here. That's just Shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't the disciples be taking off their outer garments and wrapping towels around them and all lining up to wash Jesus' feet? Heck yeah. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened. And you must understand the context of foot washing, what it is, what it symbolizes, what it means, why it even transpired, why it was something they did then. What is Israel? It's a desert region. It's hot. It's dry, it's dusty, it's, it's just desert. Has anyone here ever been in the desert? Well, would you rather be in a dry desert or in Florida with Cameron last week? Maybe the dry desert? Because then you're just, you know, it's like 90 and you're just taking a shower in your own shirt because of the humidity, right? This is a desert. And the dusty conditions and, and the use of sandals, right? They didn't have Nikes, man. They didn't have no Jordans or whatever these pointed things are that make me look almost not a man. I should be wearing cowboy boots or something. That would make me look real. I'd look like a village people. This is a desert region. These people wore sandals. They're walking around town everywhere. There's no asphalt. There's no concrete. Everywhere they go, they're in dirt. And they had sandals. And in Jewish households that could afford servants, they usually appointed a servant as the lowest ranking servant, what, to the position of foot washer. And guess what? This is something I discovered that I wasn't aware of, because I already knew that, but I wasn't aware of this detail. Nine times out of ten, that servant was a Gentile, because Jews felt that washing feet was below them. You'd be hard-pressed to get a Jewish person in a Jewish household to wash your feet. But they'd say, hey, Greek boy, come here. Yes. They would hire Gentiles as servants to wash feet. This was below Jews. In fact, the Midrash, an ancient commentary on the Old Testament Scripture, specified that foot washing could not be required of even Hebrew slaves. Even a Jewish slave, if a, sl if a Jewish person was in debt and they couldn't afford to pay their debt and they, you know, they indentured themselves to you, they became your slave to pay off that debt, that owner of that slave couldn't even, if he was Jewish, couldn't even command that Jewish servant to wash feet. That's how far below. And Jesus is Jewish, washing feet. Oh. Jesus... <laughs> obviously did not think, did not believe that foot washing was below him, did he? He obviously did not think or believe that he was better than the 12 that were in the room. And this is God we're speaking of. You remember what Jesus said back in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came to be served. Wait a minute, that doesn't sit right. No, it actually says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' service even included the lowest form of service in that region and culture, foot washing. Maybe the lowest of all is dying on a cross as a criminal, especially when you're innocent. Here in our text, Jesus literally backs his words, right? I came to serve, not to be served. He backs his words with loving action by stooping, going down on his knees 
to wash these men's feet. And in doing this, he sets an example for how his disciples should see themselves low, right? You're, you're not only a servant, but you're a low servant. If you ever attended a church where the pastor is, the, is, a, is a rock star and he gets all the accolades and attention and money and, and he's, he's just treated like a superstar and he can't interact with anyone? Antithesis of what Jesus is telling the disciples here. That ought to raise a flag for you. Pastors aren't supposed to be celebrated. They're not supposed to be celebrities. They're supposed to be low servants, foot washers. And he's setting an example for these guys. Guys, I'm leaving, man. This is what it's all about. You're to be low. You're to be humble. And guess what? You're to love others. Expressing that love in these, in these ways of service, like even going as low as washing feet. That's what you're to do. That's what you're to be, right? Especially the feet. Especially serve other believers, right? He's setting this example for them so that they can see how they are to think of themselves low and how they are to love others, be willing to do whatever God calls you to do in that moment in service for somebody, humbling yourself and maybe even scrubbing some nasty feet. And you're thinking, oh, Lord, I hope that's not the, the application. My wife is because she's not a foot person. She's had to look at my feet for 30 years. They're tore up from the floor up. You know, Jesus does, however, as I already alluded to or pointed to, he does set the highest example of love. This is a high example. What we see in this text here, this is, you know, especially for him, someone like him who's, who, who was on a throne 30 years, 33 years earlier, he was sitting on a throne. And he comes and he washes these guys' feet. That's a heck of an example. But the greatest example is set the next day when he's nailed to a cross. The disciples, in fact, let me just say this. Jesus said this, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends, John 15, 13. He wasn't necessarily talking about soldiers who die on the battlefield, and that's used on almost every epitaph and everything for soldiers. Great. But he's talking about himself. There is no greater love. Washing the feet, great example of love. But the greatest example is what I will accomplish on the cross for your sin. Right? Jesus said it himself. Now, Back to the scene. Imagine yourself there in the corner watching. You're a fly on the wall, watching it play out. The disciples, imagine the table. This is not a supper table like we have. You know, big rectangular table or whatever, or even a round table with a bunch of high chairs around it. That's not what they used. These guys would have been reclining at the supper table in the classic or traditional posture, each one. And here's what they did. These tables were low to the ground. And they usually had a cushion that they sat on and rested themselves on. And they would sit like this with one arm propping up their head with another arm that could get to the dishes of food. And their feet would be like this behind them. So they would kind of lay on their side. They didn't sit in chairs like we do. That's the thing that the, uh, the painting, the Da Vinci painting doesn't capture, right? They're all sitting like at one of our dinner tables. This table would have been almost on the ground and they would have been like this with their feet kind of sitting out behind them. So imagine... That's how they're sitting around it. Feet stretched out behind them, and what does Jesus do? He, he takes off his outer garment, right? He wraps a towel around his waist. He fills a basin, and as these guys are reclined with their feet behind them, he comes behind each one and gently lifts up their feet, not to where they you know, fall over and hit the table. He kind of lifts up their feet, puts the basin under it, washes a pair of feet, moves to the next person, washes a pair of feet, right? This is what he's doing. So you can see it in your mind's eye. He moved from one to the next. He even washed the feet of Judas. Wow. The betrayer. But when he gets to Peter, when he gets to Peter, when he gets to Simon Peter, right, he's going around the table. He probably saved Peter for last because he knew it was going to be a problem. He's probably like, oh, man, he's at the end of the table. Here we go. Let me get in there. Hey, what are you doing? Peter totally objects and stops him. Totally objects and stops him. 
He's gotten through everyone, even Judas, who knows he doesn't have the right intention or heart, right? He's got bad intentions. Judas doesn't stop him. Judas is probably like, hey, it's better to have clean feet when I'm about to leave here to betray you. Who knows what he was going through his mind. But Peter says, hey, 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 hey. Stop right there, Jesus. Now look at 6 through 11. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? I mean, really? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. So you would think that that would have been enough right there. Okay, go ahead. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. (laughs) Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Whoa. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, give me a shower. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash. It's like, why do I have to keep doing this with you, Peter? The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but it's completely clean, and you are clean, Peter, but not every one of you. Verse 11, for he knew who was to what? Betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. You know, Peter, I like to make fun of him, but in doing so, I make fun of myself because I am him. I am Peter. I am a Peter. He was both sincere, but he was also stupid. He loved Jesus, no doubt. Hey, Lord! He believed that Jesus was the Messiah, no doubt. But in an effort to uphold the Lord's dignity in some strange way, he speaks out of turn and he questions Jesus. You're going to wash my feet? You're the Lord of the universe. You shouldn't be washing my feet or these guys' feet or anyone's feet. That's what's going through his mind. He's telling Jesus what to do and what not to do. If you have ever told God what to do, you're Peter, right? We were listening to something the other day and talking about how there are certain circles out there that just bully God. They're always telling God what he must do and all that, and they just bully God. It's just amazing to me that they're still doing it. Lord, why do you cause them to prosper? He bullies Jesus right here. You're not going to do my feet. You're not. No, 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 no. You shouldn't be washing anyone's feet. And it kind of... He's sincere, right? But stupid. That's me. And Jesus admonishes him, right? He corrects him. You don't understand what I'm doing here, but in a moment you will. Now untuck your feet, slide them back here so I can wash them. Because as soon as he said no, he went, right? He sucked them right in, right under his tunic. You're not getting to my feet. Jesus is like, where'd they go? You're a magician. David Copperfield's ancestor. He, he won't give him his feet. He tucks his feet. And Jesus is like, if, 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 if I don't do it, you got nothing with me. MacArthur describes Peter as the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth because he was always speaking out of turn and putting his foot in his mouth. R. Kent Hughes wrote, sometimes the only time Peter opened his mouth was to change feet. <laughs> yeah. Right? He just always had his feet. In it. That, that's me. Is that you? No, I'm like John, the one Jesus loved here and whatever. Get out of here. And look at his, his response to Jesus' correction, right? Jesus says, look, I got to wash your feet. You're going to figure out what it means in a moment, all right? Give me your feet. No, you shall never wash my feet. This is just a big fat N-O. No, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus follows his no with a very, very, very strong warning. If I don't wash your feet, you have no share with me. There is a spiritual implication represented here. Jesus basically told him, if I don't wash your feet, you're not saved. Oh, wait a minute. So we get saved through foot washing? Hold your horses. Because if that were the case, we'd all be washing each other's feet right now, no matter how jacked up they are. I'd be like, let me get a petty first, then you can take care of mine, then I'll be saved. Biblically speaking, think about, think about the symbolism of the use of water in the Old Testament. Water is used to what? Cleanse, to purify, to wash away impurity, to wash away sin in a sense. The act of washing with water is symbolic of spiritual cleansing. 
even symbolic of forgiveness. If not the washing away with water, then the washing away with the blood of lambs provided a temporary kind of forgiveness. And Jesus, right here, Jesus attaches this symbolism because he was also seeking to illustrate the spiritual cleansing and forgiveness that will come through the washing of his own shed blood on Calvary. In this particular moment, and only in this particular moment, foot washing symbolized the washing of the blood of the Lamb. In this particular moment and in no other moment. So, you know, if you want to wash people's feet, don't be thinking, well, look, I'm washing away your sin. No, that's actually represented in baptism. There's not a literal washing away of sin, but it's the representation of the washing away of sin. You go down under the water, you come up, the sin's gone. It's actually gone spiritually already through the blood of Jesus, but it symbolizes it. Foot washing does not carry with it that kind of symbolism now. But in this particular moment, on this night, this one-time event, foot washing symbolized what the Lord was about to do the next day when he was nailed to a cross and bled out and died. I want you, this is just fascinating here. Just listen to this. Notice how the entire gospel is modeled in Jesus' actions here. Okay? Listen to this. Jesus rises from supper. He did, didn't he? He was sitting at the supper table, reclining, got up, he rose. Jesus rose from his throne in heaven. Jesus lays aside his outer garments Jesus laid aside his heavenly glory. I'm not spiritualizing this. These are the implications of what Jesus is teaching them here, and this is why he's warning Peter. If I don't wash you, you don't have the gospel because the gospel is being modeled right here by example. Jesus ties a towel around his waist. Jesus wraps himself with our sin. Jesus pours water into a basin. Jesus poured out his blood as an atonement. Jesus washes the disciples' feet and wipes them with the towel. Jesus washes and wipes away all of our sin. It's all there in his actions. Isn't that fascinating? Therefore, Jesus tells Peter, if you aren't willing to let me wash your feet, you aren't willing to let me wash you with my blood. You aren't willing to accept the gospel. And you have no part with me. No part. Did Jesus' terrifying words, because I think they're terrifying when he says, you have no part with me if I can't do this for you. Because Peter's dense like me, and he misses all the symbolism, everything that's playing out. He does, he's not connecting the dots as usual. And the disciples did this almost every time Jesus did something significant and symbolic. They were like, duh, let's go back to playing Tetris. They're just clueless. And this is a terrifying warning. You have no part with me. I have to wash you. Because tomorrow, this represents what I'm going to do tomorrow for you. I'm going to wash your sin away. I'm going to die on that cross. So you better let me wash your feet right now. Does the warning penetrate Peter's granite skull? Yes. Big time. Big time. Now just notice how Peter goes from one extreme to another. <laughs> Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, wash my whole body, Jesus. I want to be forgiven. I want to be cleansed. I want to be yours. Right response, but a little dramatic. Me again, very dramatic. You're like, yeah, you're doing it right now. And Jesus literally replies, that won't be necessary, Peter. I don't have to wash your whole body. The one who has bathed does not need to wash, not need to wash his whole body except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. You have been forgiven. You have been cleansed. But not every one of you here is in the same position that you are. The idea here is that if we have been washed by the blood of Jesus by grace through faith, we are justified and do not need to re-experience another full spiritual washing. 
In other words, we have already been fully bathed. And we call it baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not talking about where you receive tongues and all that shenanigans. This is the moment when a person first believes they are baptized, possessed by the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, you are cleansed. You don't have to go back and be re-forgiven. You, you don't have to do like Catholicism promotes and re-nail Jesus to the cross and just leave him up there because you keep sinning. No, his work is done. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. You are clean. There is, however, an experiential washing that we need to experience as we battle sin on a daily basis. And we experience this daily cleansing through confession. Not to some priest who bears the title, Father, blasphemy, but to our Lord, our mediator. Confession is, is part of the progressive sanctifying process as we're being made more and more like Jesus. Confession is something that we do as we travel as we're his disciples. And confession cleanses us of the contaminating effects of sin. It cleanses us. And this is why we need to confess moment by moment. You know, when we confess our sins, it's like, and this is the example Jesus is giving here as he switches it up on Peter, it's like having our feet that have traveled throughout this sinful world and our sinful community and it's like having our feet, as we've walked around in this sinful world, it's like having them washed and cleaned. I don't need to be washed from head to toe. I just need toe. I just need my feet cleaned because of, of sin. I'm forgiven. I'm accepted. Nothing changes that. But I do need to confess daily. It's part of my sanctification. And when I confess, it's like having my feet washed. Amen? This is why it's important for us to keep short accounts and live confessionally. Learn to confess your sins immediately after you slip up and commit them and learn to practice per personal righteousness. After clarifying things for Peter, Jesus states very clearly that there is one in their midst who has not been washed, who is unclean, and obviously he's referring to the betrayer Judas, right? Now we move to 12 through 15. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that also you should do as I have done to you. There it is. After washing everyone's feet, Jesus puts on his outer garments. He sits back down at the supper table, right? They reconvene the meal. And he looks around the table and he says, Hey, do you guys understand what I've done for you? You guys think of me as your teacher and Lord. And notice how those are capitalized. There's a, a reverence there and a respect from the disciples to Jesus. That's probably is why Peter protested to begin with. He just couldn't imagine, imagine having his feet washed by the Lord of the universe, which is a pretty good thing there, even though he's misguided. You guys realize what I've done for you? I'm your teacher and Lord. This is who I am, no doubt. But, but if I, your teacher and Lord, am willing to stoop and to wash your feet, how much more willing should you? You are not the teacher. You are not the Lord. You are not the curios. You are the doulos, the slave. How much more willing should you be able to do what I just did? You should be much more willing. That's his point. He tells him, I did this to set a loving example for you. Guess what? Follow my example. And Luke tells us that the disciples, and you don't see it here in John, but Luke tells us that the disciples, they responded correctly and began to wash each other's feet and, and everyone just lived happily ever after. And, and no, 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 no. Luke tells us that they flat out rejected the idea of stooping down to wash each other's feet and they began to argue over which of them was the greatest disciple right at this precise moment. Luke 22, 24. Ventures and missing the point. Hughes suggests that this who's the greatest controversy began well before the disciples actually arrived at the upper room. Luke 9, 46 and Matthew 20, 21 seem to support his theory. They had 
consistent arguments throughout the ministry of Jesus over which of them was the greatest and who would receive the highest honor with Jesus. <laughs> the opposite of what Jesus was teaching them, always. These disciples, they, they wanted the high positions in Jesus' coming kingdom, and washing people's feet didn't fit in with the high position. That was something that the old little Gentile did. And they were willing to fight with each other over the throne, but nobody wanted the towel in the bucket. Jesus' act was a powerful, powerful lesson in servanthood, and they totally, totally missed the point here. And their ridiculous action resulted in a stern rebuke from the Lord. Look at 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. Notice again the double truly. We see it here. We've seen it in John's gospel. Truly, truly, I say to you. This signifies that the following statement is of higher importance. Jesus continues there. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. It was as if Jesus had said, you think that foot washing is beneath you that you are too good for it. Therefore, you believe that you're greater than me, your master. You're not willing to do what I did. You must think you're better than me. That's what he tells them. <laughs> if I, the greater, am willing to wash feet, how much more willing should you, the lesser, be to wash feet? As Jesus' servants, we must be willing to follow his example, but when we shrink back from doing this because we feel that the task at hand is beneath us, we are communicating to our Lord and Master that we are greater than him. That's what happens. Jesus added another illustration to really drive home this important truth, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Well, I think he was referring to himself. Jesus thought of himself as the messenger of his father. He came to communicate the Father's message, the gospel to the world, right? John 17, 16. Jesus never deviated from his duty because he understood that messengers are not autonomous, able to do whatever they want. Messengers have a prescribed message and mission, and they must stick to it. If they deviate from what is prescribed, they send the wrong message. I am greater than the one who sent me, right? Listen to what Jesus said back in John 5, 19. Truly, truly, there it is. I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. If Jesus, the messenger, refused to preach the gospel or wash his disciples' feet, etc., or anything else, he would be denying the one who set the example for him. He would be denying the one who sent him, the father. And he would clearly be sending the wrong message. I am greater than the one who sent me. I, the son, am greater than the father. If he didn't do what the father instructed him to do or modeled and exampled for him, he'd be saying, I don't respect you, father. I'm going to do what I want. And in rejecting the idea of washing each other's feet, this is precisely what the disciples just did to their Lord and teacher, their master and teacher. We're better than you. We're not going to do that. You stoop. We're not doing it. In a similar way, the disciples were about to become Jesus' sent messengers, which means that they had to be committed to sticking to what the Lord prescribed, what he modeled for them. Think of the logic. If they were unwilling to stick to Jesus' example, foot washing, <laughs> it is not likely that they would follow through with anything else, that they would even die for Jesus. I mean, if you can't wash somebody's feet, you're not going to die for him, Right? A little later that evening, Peter vows to lay down his life for Jesus. Verse 37, if Peter was unwilling to do something as simple as wash John's feet, it is highly unlikely that he'd be, he would be willing to do something much more difficult, die for his Lord. There's the logic. And we know how the story goes, don't we? Before the rooster crowed, Peter denied Jesus three times. If you'd have just followed my example and washed feet, you probably would not have denied me three times. But you had no courage. You thought of yourself too high. But guess what? By my grace, I'll restore you. Look at our last verse. Jesus wraps up this beautiful little section, this example that he's given, this love that he showed them this command to be that way and to do these things for others, especially each other. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So the rebuke of the Lord, because that's what we just read, that was a sharp rebuke, is followed by a gracious guarantee. If the disciples will humble themselves and follow Jesus' example, 
they will be blessed. This statement is very similar to James 1.22 to 25. We are to be more than hearers of the word. We are to be doers of the word. Sometimes I think that we think that we're getting all blessed by God and we're in his will and doing all that because we're hearing the truth all the time and you know, we're believing the truth and we're storing up the truth in our minds and all that. And we think, wow, I'm just so blessed and, and that's what God wants for me. Uh, a newsflash, God wants you to take that truth and live it out. He wants you to obey it. That's where the blessing comes, not just in the hearing, in the doing. This is my struggle. God's blessings come to us as we do as we obey the word of God, not just in the hearing. And the blessing that Jesus appears to be pointing to here is joy. It's the joy of the Lord. Obedience. If we obey the Lord's commands, we abide in his love. And when we abide in his love, this is John 15, when we abide in his love, we experience the fullness of the Lord's joy. That's precisely what Jesus tells his disciples a little later when they're on the way to Gethsemane in 15, 10 through 11. MacArthur wraps it up with a little tiny bit of commentary. He says, joy is always tied to obedience to God's revealed word. Closing. I want you to rewind. Go all the way back to verse 1 where it says, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. For me personally, that's the most profound statement in this verse. Maybe it's because I love the love of God and I'm just selfish that way. I just covet his love. The question is, have we become disciples? Jesus' disciples by grace through faith. If so, we are in the world, living here now, but we are not of this world In other words, we do not belong to the world and we are not under its power, its curses, its darkness. Having loved his own who were in the world, if you're in Christ, that's you. You're in the world. He loves you. Not only does he love you now currently, but he loves you perfectly. There's no hiccups in his love. His love is not contingent upon your goodness or your ability to obey. He loves you. At all times, despite your flaws, despite your foolishness. A story about Tsar Nicholas I of Russia tells us something of Jesus' love for us. Listen closely. The czar was greatly interested in a young man because he had been friends with the young man's father. When that young man came of age, Tsar Nicholas gave him a fine position in the army. He also stationed him in a place of responsibility at one of the the great fortresses of Russia. The young man was responsible for the monies and finances of that particular, of a particular division of the army. And the young man did quite well at first, but as time went along, he became quite a gambler. Before long, he had gambled his entire fortune away. He borrowed from the treasury and also gambled that away, a few rubles at a time. In other words, he stole money from the treasury to keep up his gambling habit, ran up that debt. One day, he heard that there was going to be an audit of the books on the very next day. Uh Uh-oh. He went to the safe, took out his ledger, and figured out how much money he had, then subtracted the amount he had taken. And as he sat at the table, overwhelmed at the astronomical debt, he took out his pen and wrote, A great debt. Who can pay? Not willing to go through the shame of what would happen the next day, he, he took out his revolver and, and covenanted with himself that at the stroke of midnight, he would take his life. 
It was a, a warm and, and drowsy night. And as the young man sat at the table, he dozed off. Now, Tsar Nicholas had a habit of putting on a common soldier's uniform and visiting some of his outposts. On that very night, he, he came to that particular great fortress. And, and as he looked it up and down and, and inspected it from the outside, he saw a light on in one of the rooms. He knocked on the door, but no one answered. He tried the latch, opened the door, and went in. There was the young man. The czar recognized him immediately, knew who he was. When he had saw the note on the table and the ledgers laid out, his first impulse was to wake the young man and arrest him. But overtaken with a wave of generosity, he instead took the pen that had fallen out of the soldier's hand and wrote one word on the paper and then tiptoed out of the room. About an hour later, the young man woke up and reached for his revolver, realizing that it was way after midnight. Then his eyes fell upon his note, a great debt, who can pay? And he saw immediately that one word had been added, Nicholas. The young man dropped the gun, ran to the files, thumbled through some correspondence and found the czar's signature on all of them. The note was authentic. The realization struck him. The czar has been here and he knows all my guilt, but he has undertaken my debt and I will not have to die. The young man trusted in the czar's word and sure enough, the needed monies came in. The czar's love, paying the price for his guilty young friend, was only a faint shadow of the atoning love of Christ. Nicholas's deed was an easy matter for him, as easy as signing his name, but the atoning love of Jesus cost him everything. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. But this is not the only thing we see in the text. Jesus also set an example of his love for the disciples by stooping down to wash their feet. He would soon be physically gone, so it was important that he teach them how to love and serve others in his steed. He was also teaching them that, that obedience results in blessings. Foot washing was nothing more than the example, the medium, the tool he used. Jesus was not seeking to establish another sacrament, nor did he restrict all of this to foot washing. That is not the point. His point is this, we are to love, we are to serve others, especially believers, as Jesus loves and serves us. That's the point. We are to follow Jesus' example, we are to obey Jesus' commands, and we will be blessed. Jesus said many more examples and gave many more commands, and we are to follow and obey all of them to the best of our ability in the supplied power of the Holy Spirit. We see so clearly in the text the example of Jesus' love and then how it's embodied in that story. And we see the example, an example of how he loves us, but more than that, an example of how we ought to love others humbly. No task that we're unwilling to do for our brethren. Philippians 2, 3 through 8 provides a, a perfect summary of the Lord's teaching in this whole section, 13, 1 through 17. I'll close with it. This is who we are to be. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Listen to this. Have this mind among yourselves. What mind? That others are greater than me. Have that mind 
And he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And listen to the example that Jesus set for us. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's who we're to be. Yes, Christ loves us to the end, perfectly. Ten million times greater than Tsar Nicholas ever loved that young man. And now we are to love others. We are to love others. We are to love others. In what ways, in whatever ways the Spirit leads you to in any moment. I'm not opposed to churches doing foot-washing ceremonies. That can be a beautiful thing. And some people exalt it up to the level of sacrament. That's not the point. It may not be foot-washing that's presented to you as an opportunity. It could be anything. The point is, be low. Be humble. And think of others as greater than yourself. And serve them, especially your brethren especially the people in this room. Take a look around this room. This is who you're to love. Back there. This is who you're to love. No limits. No restrictions. Love them. Love them. Amen.